Hi, I'm Kat. And I'm Gabe. And we're the Ghouls Next Door. And we are finishing up our representation series, at least for no, right now. No, it's never done. It's Well, no, our work is never done. Um, and I have no doubt that we'll either recover these subjects later um, and, re- and cover some more, because there's a lot of populations that are represented in horror and not always to the best of our abilities. Yeah. And for lots of reasons. But today we are kind of finishing up and wrapping this up with um, one last episode, one last hurrah for this. And we are talking specifically about Eastern Asian representation in horror. And we've invited Rob Busher of the Philadelphia Asian American Film Festival. Did I say your last name right? Uh, it's Busher. Busher. Close enough. What did I say? Busher. Why don't you tell our uh, listeners a little bit about yourself and why they should listen to you? So I'm a mixed-race Japanese-American. My family came here from Japan in the 1920s. Um, I'm a fourth-generation American, and uh, you know we've got a long history here as, as a community, as a peoples. Um, although I think based on what you see typically in mainstream media, television, and films, you are led to believe oftentimes that Asians only exist as immigrants with heavily mm. accented tropes and stereotypes. So... I think it's important, you know, to kind of think about who this community is over the long history of uh, time that people have been here in this country. Um, I run the Asian American Film Festival here in Philadelphia. I've been the festival director now for six years, been involved with the festival for seven since 2013, and I come at it from a programming background. So I spend a lot of time watching and curating films. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm also an avid horror fan. Yay! Yes. Um, If you are... If that name sounded familiar to you, it's because we kind of fangirled over um, Rob in a later, uh, earlier episode when we talked about um, our foreign horror in Japan uh, episode, where we found the most very convenient article, just like through circumstance, um, where it was about Japanese horror and like the history of that. And I was like, this is awesome. And then I saw the name and I was like, wait a second, I know this person. It was kind of just cool to see and to know. And then I was like, oh, and... I totally trust this resource because I know you're familiar, like I was familiar with you because of the Asian American Film Festival here in Philadelphia. So I was like, this is perfect. Um, And so today we're going to talk about specifically Eastern Asian representation, right? So we didn't want to cast this really broad net on a, a lot of different peoples who are usually categorized under this like Asian representation, because uh, I just don't feel like that does a justice to all of the different niche populations in there and their experiences. Um, kind of like when we talked about Latinx, we are being very specific. And that's not to say that we won't in the future cover um, specific countries the way that we've done with Japan. We have plans to do so. Um, and also like to um, cover certain areas in there as well and what they're their lives are about. But we're going to dive into uh, Eastern Asian representation in horror, where we will talk about the uh, AMC TV show, The Terror, but season two. Don't do what we did and accidentally watch season one. We will talk about season two and we'll explain why. We're like, maybe eventually something happens. <laughs> I was like, this is different. too long in time period <laughs> for there ever to be an overlap. I was like, this is way too far in the past for there to be like a good overlap in any way. Um, We'll explain. You'll see.
Okay, so we are talking about Eastern Asian representation. I wanted to kind of dive in, in a way, because there's a lot of threads that we keep seeing, um, a lot of tropes and characters that are kind of the same <laughs> throughout like the different um, minorities, right? So it's like we all serve this one purpose, um, and they just kind of swap out <laughs> for a new minority. It's like, oh, it's your turn to be this character. It's your turn to be that. Or even to see kind of um, like a, a comparison to, to some of the tropes and how mm -hmm. they change between minorities. So um, one thing I was like thinking about is uh, Ariel in our Black Women in Horror episode talked about like the fetishism of the black woman and how there's like this dichotomous like she is, you know, dangerous because she's like gorgeous and exotic, but it's like she's also a temptress, you mm -hmm. know, like she's going to corrupt you. Right. Um, and that kind of trend is also seen for Eastern Asian women where they are seen as like, but but instead of being like the aggressive temptress that we see with black women, they're more of like the timid one that's just waiting. Right. But they're like secretly the poisonous one like they're usually like represented um like as like a dragon or a snake um but there's also like the the kind of dangerous uh dragon lady for the older like east asian women who are like the ones who are like demanding and telling you what to do versus like the young and like timid and like all that and it's just a weird fantasy for, I guess, like the white protagonist that we have on screen. Um, and then even that versus what we're seeing with the way that like East Asian men are represented, mm -hmm. where they're not even allowed to like be the protagonist or be the sex symbol. Um, and it in because they were like a direct threat to the workforce of the white men at the time. Yeah, I mean, there's so much there in terms of gender politics and masculine and feminine sexuality. Um, every time that you see historically Asian women on screen, it's as a kind of submissive, docile, sexually available, uh, or in other cases, hypersexualized mm -hmm. women who are actively prostituting themselves. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, it comes from a long history of American military presence in mm. Asia. That makes sense. And the unfortunate reality uh, is that there's quite a bit of prostitution in really all military occupations. But considering the history of the United States in the Philippines, uh, colonizing, annexing the Philippines as a territory from 1898, um, looking at the history of the occupation of Japan post-World mm -hmm. War II, of course, Vietnam and the time that people were there in Southeast Asia, obviously the Korean War as well. Um, and the fact that there's still a military presence in all of those regions from the United States has led to this kind of generation-wide understanding that Asian women can be bought and sold as a sexual commodity. Mm. Um, and it's something that we see time and time again within popular culture. Yeah, and it's it, it, it's such a weird, like when you think about like the history behind like our fetishism of these specific women, um, and even uh, something that Kat is gonna touch on later is even like when there was, uh, a Asian woman who was going to be in in a film that they couldn't have a, a white man star alongside her. So that would limit the Asian woman's ability to even be on screen mm -hmm. because of course that white man's going to come first. Like you're just here. And then even just thinking in some things we're going to talk about with the um, like Japanese internment camps, like during that turmoil in time, it was even harder to like get any type of representation on screen and it not be 
you know, whitewashed with some... Or just horribly offensive. And used <laughs> yes. as, like, a tool to create fear or just, like, maybe the, like, lack there. Like, trying to make it a comedy character mm-hmm. who is non-threatening. So, obviously, we can do whatever we want with... Yes, the caricatures. Idea. Like, essentially, all those, like, pamphlets and... Um, horrible imagery that we are seeing and similar to how like um like the how black people were represented in like you know the with the big red lips and the crazy black face right we had like the opposite um for the way that we were seeing chinese people in like california because they were like these are our enemies so we have to like cartoonize them and then they just further did that with like white people's faces by cartoonizing is that a word are you, cartoonize I don't know if that's Car- a word. Caricatures. Caricatures. Right. There you go. They made them caricatures. Um, yeah, there's a there's a big problem with whitewashing, right? So uh, thinking about Ghost in the Shell or Dragon Ball in current days, um, but Avatar. even. Avatar, yeah. mm-hmm. like really, um, and that came and from Sh- Shyamalan. Right? <laughs> yeah, like what South are you Asian doing? Dude. Come on, man. Um, you have like why? Yeah, but even thinking like uh, back to Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff's Mr. Wong, the detective series. Like Bela Lugosi, and we've talked about both of these gentlemen, but Bela has a very strong Hungarian accent, mm-hmm. and they didn't even pretend to like get rid of like they didn't school him to not even do that like versus uh which is just like blatant like we don't care (laughs) right to something that's like incredibly cringy uh like mickey rooney which is just like very yikes um from was it breakfast at tiffany's oh my god so bad uh (laughs) so like you see those things and they're very cringy but then we're still seeing those right so we still have like emma stone playing people she shouldn't be playing uh we got scarlett johansson we got peter sellers who's done it more than once um um, in different things. We have the entire cast of Cloud Atlas yeah. who just decided an entire plot line was where we all just like did a horrible thing and it's like, why did you do that? That was like a decade ago. Yeah. Right? Well, it's amazing too, I think, like how yellow face is something that we still see even today mm-hmm, to some extent, mm-hmm. um, along with brown face, right? The costuming yeah. of South Asian American individuals by non-South Asian people. Um the most recent stuff that we've seen, like think about Mad TV, right? Miss mm-hmm. Swan, oh, that character yes. was played by a white comedian mm-hmm. for like a decade yeah. on primetime television. Um, in yeah. 2013, I think uh, there was a Pop Chips commercial that Ashton Kutcher was in where he oh, was no. Raj, the Bollywood producer, oh, in like full no. on brown face and a you know really awful accent. But, uh, you know, that stuff is kind of amazing to me because when we think about the broader implications on society, if someone was to do blackface, like openly, mm-hmm. I mean, they wouldn't be working. Yeah. But yeah. at the same time, like there's still these like major figures within Hollywood who have broadly done this kind of stuff. Uh, it's also kind of frustrating. You mentioned Emma Stone, right? Yeah. I mean, in that film, Aloha, like it's shot on location in Hawaii, which is like the capital of mixed race Asian people. <laughs> yeah. You're telling me they couldn't find a single person, <laughs> nope. a Can single Hapa girl like on the island that could have <laughs> played a better. Yeah. I, I, I just can't believe that. Yeah. Um, but actually, you had mentioned, too, Boris Karloff, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's interesting to think about him, that role of Mr. Wong. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's playing a Chinese detective in that, right? And so he was actually a hero. Yeah. And those, uh, as offensive as those stereotypes are, and the fact, of course, that they were being played by white actors most of the time, also being very offensive, were actually meant to counter the Chinese villain trope, yeah. right? And so, like, Fu Manchu, mm-hmm. like, specifically... They were looking at this kind of dichotomy between people like Charlie Chan 
or Detective Wong and then Fu Manchu being like the oriental evil. You can't see my fingers, but I'm doing scare quotes here. Yeah. Um, and it's this kind of interesting thing where like Karloff made his career out of these movie monsters, right? Yeah. And even well into the 80s, they would rerun the Fu Manchu films with him playing in Yellowface in these movie monster double or triple bills. Yeah. And uh, it's it's odd, right? Because like when else have you seen like someone who's racialized as an evil other put in that same category as a movie monster. We also have a trope that we keep seeing, which is this idea of like a magical like version mm. of this minority, right? So we have the magical Negro trope. Um, we have, we do have like usually like magical like Native Americans or like indigenous people, right? And then we have Native, uh, we have magical like Asian people who are, where it's like they know Kung Fu mm-hmm. or martial arts. Um, they are kind of like off-putting and strict, right? So like, um, like Mr. Miyagi, right? Sure. Um, who's just like here literally to give the tools to our protagonist so that they can go fight their battles and then they're like done. And they're also kind of like inhuman in a way like Mm -hmm. they're kind of like a superhero but not enough of a superhero to be the protagonist it's funny though because you know thinking about mr miyagi specifically uh my great-grandfather was a judo sensei and like he was pretty close to mr miyagi in a lot of ways right so like there are certain things that are stereotypes that are tropes that are based in fact but it's also the problem is that for so long there's been this kind of scarcity of representation Mm -hmm. so every time that you get that one role it's got to speak for thousands of people yeah you know whereas a white person for example doesn't have that same crisis when it's like here's a serial killer that's on screen but then there's like a dozen romantic comedies that come out the same weekend starring white people or like an action film who's also the hero is a white person yeah or even if it is a serial killer film like our protagonist is also a white person Mm -hmm. right so it's like Mm -hmm. we like we can see very clearly on the same screen two different types of people who are both white and like so we're like oh look at all the options we have but it's like no you have to fit this one specific role these are what you're written in as and it's like either you're like the geisha that we're like mooning over or you're like the kung fu master who's literally just here to like teach this kid to fight his own battles Mm -hmm. um there's this what I found was interesting and I was thinking about it was um the idea that like the future is very Asian in the way that people are looking at it so like when you think of like um uh Blade Runner yeah absolutely (laughs) right like it's like very like it's it has a lot of that influence but at the same time there's very little representation of like Asian people in Mm -hmm. this environment, especially, um, I have not watched, was it 2049 is the new one? Yeah. Uh, Some like, whatever it was, um, which has even less (laughs) specific representation of anyone who's not white. Right. So it's just like, how do we have all this influence, which makes sense because that's like the majority of like the world's population. So of course they would have an influence and specifically like in the future world that we're seeing, um, where they're speaking Mandarin in Firefly. Right. Uh, but to, to simultaneously like just take their culture, but then completely erase them from the imagery that we're seeing on screen as far as people are concerned. I think the erasure aspect is interesting because I, for such a long time in this country's history, it was this kind of exclusion logic, mm-hmm. you know, whereas like indigenous genocide and African slavery characterized these other immigrant and uh, slave populations that the United States built the power structure and the economy on. Asians, for the most part, although they were also human labor capital, 
were excluded for as long as they could be. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a big part of the story even today when you kind of look at the media landscape. You're not seeing these people even when aspects of the culture are being appropriated directly or it's just influencing these kinds of future scapes that we see in a lot of science fiction films. Um, I got much love for the Blade Runner universe, mm-hmm. but uh, you know Ridley Scott is admittedly not the best when it comes to representation. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he had a, a really uh, unfortunate quote around the, I think it was the Gods of Egypt that he was doing. Oh, no, I don't where know. Where it was, uh, what am I going to do? C- cast Muhammad's who and such oh, and such as so and so? And, um, you know, it's, it's just that kind of flippant attitude that, uh-huh. like, who cares about diversity if it doesn't sell? Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, that is the commercial reality, right? Like, we're looking at a film industry. And so it's hard sometimes, you know, I I get this a lot because like we're doing community work through this film festival and it's Mm -hmm. really about trying to bring up a group of people who haven't seen themselves historically represented. But at the same time, like we have to be realistic that unless we're being able to uh, create a market commodity, if we're not bringing in big box office returns, if we don't have the ratings on a TV show, we're not going to get cast again or we're not going to get that next pilot greenlit. So it's this kind of commercial reality versus the actual good that we can do um, through this type of media. Yeah, there was a a quote that Kat found which talked about that specific thing. So um, it is from Vice.com, specifically an article, Hollywood Doesn't Fully Represent Asian Americans Yet uh, by Bettina McCollentall. But it was uh, a quote from the writer of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Tess Perez. And uh, essentially, she has a really great quote. Talented Filipina ex-actor friend of mine is meeting with new agents, and one just told him that Filipinos are a hard sell and that she couldn't do anything with that. And she tweeted about it, saying, Pursuing dreams is so hard, and I read stuff like this, and I want to give up. But then I remember when I was little and I never saw anyone like me on TV or in film. And it made me feel like we didn't exist. And I really, really want to be that person for someone. And I'm going to die trying. And that's kind of like what we've been touching on in this whole series is the importance of being represented on screen. And not just like being there. It's also the way that you're being presented, right? Because this is sometimes the only part that people can see, right? Like if we live in an environment, like here in Philly, we have a lot of different communities. I get to see all kinds of people and interact with them. But if you go outside of Philadelphia into any other place in Pennsylvania, if watching like TV is the only way that you're going to experience this different culture or know about these other peoples, it is very, very important that we are getting diversity and we're seeing like heroes and we're seeing um, different levels of people, not just like the same tropes, which then influence the way that we see an entire culture. And then also for those kids out there who might be living in those same places um, where they're the only family on the block that's a minority and then they're not seeing themselves on TV. Yeah, it feels the sense of otherness, that whole not seeing yourself on screen. If that's the only film you get, then Mm -hmm. that is the only understanding of what that group is so you if you have one film where you're Mr. Miyagi and then everything else is just white people white people white people you're not gonna one feel like you're gonna feel like oh does everyone think I need to be Mr. Miyagi or like what the heck like what am I where am I in this and then if you don't see yourself you feel like you don't exist Exist. you know and I I can hard relate to that because (laughs) I grew up in a town of less than 20,000 people in uh, rural suburban Connecticut where my mom and sister were the only other Japanese Americans. 
in that entire community. Like literally three other Asian families when we were growing up. So kind of trying to make sense of identity, it's a hard enough thing no matter who you are or where you're from. But then on top of that, you know, especially in, I grew up in like the early 90s, right? And so coming of age at a time when, you know, the best uh, representations were things like Gede Watanabe as a uh, long duck dong and 16 oh, candles uh, yeah. or, you know, like Miss Swan coming on TV eventually and like people comparing her to my mother. Um, so just trying to, you know, carve out a space so that this next generation doesn't have the, that scarcity that we did growing up. And it's happening, you know, yeah. and I think that we definitely see that happening, particularly in the television space. Yeah, I was going to say we are making some strides, right? Like so we had um, Crazy Rich Asians, which has made Real, a lot of money, <laughs> which is great, and a lot of attention. Um, we have Killing Eve with Sandra O, oh, which is awesome. Um, we have Two All the Boys I Loved Before, which it had made us cry and laugh. Um, yeah. Aquafina's The Farewell, which is getting a lot of really amazing reviews. Always Be My Maybe, Pen15. Uh, there's Glenn in Walking Dead. There's John Cho as, um, in The Exorcist uh, TV series starting, yes, I think, season two. Yeah, you also have Fresh Off the Boat. Which... Um, but I think people are starting to see that these are narratives that people enjoy mm -hmm. um, and that it's that we can do that, right? Like, we can trust these stories to be told and that they will make the money that the, the houses are looking for them to make. Yeah, and I think that's, if nothing else, the great thing about the successes of both Black Panther and Crazy Rich Asians was that in the same year... Like Hollywood no longer had an excuse to say that a people of color led film is not going to do well at the box office because yeah. both of those smashed all kinds of records and expectations. Yeah. And, you know, ever since there's been a lot more real authenticity in terms of the kinds of characters that people are being written into, uh, both on television and in films. Um, but, you know, I think the one thing that I would caution people against is thinking that, you know, we're okay now, right? Because, yeah. like, oh, well, we yeah. start to see some <laughs> things happening and there is change, there's a movement, but it doesn't happen overnight. And I think it's also important to remember that in a community as large as the Asian American and Pacific Islander community, obviously there's a lot of folks that are being left out of that conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, people who have been historically marginalized within this community that are still not getting to see their stories told. Um I guess you kind of touched on this as we were going, right? But kind of what, you know, where your passion for, like, being involved in the film festival and helping these stories come out, like, where does that come from? And, like, and what do you get out of representing, like, and, and fostering representation? So my great-grandmother who was a first-generation Japanese immigrant, an Ise, as we would call. Uh, we count, like, the generations in Japanese. Mm. So I'm a Yonsei, four. Nice. Uh, she's an Ise. She was. She lived until 2006. So I was in college by the time that she passed away. And um, very few people of my generation have the privilege of knowing their immigrant ancestors. Uh, so it kind of gave me and my sister a bit of a leg up, I think, in terms of understanding the importance of our heritage and also this direct lineage of what it meant to have folks who came from Japan. And then mm -hmm. also weathering the crazy storm that was living in America as a Japanese American throughout the 20th century. Yeah. Um, so the first and most important thing that I, I credit her for constantly is that uh, I got to have an appreciation of Japanese cinema because of her. 
Um, she loved film and television. She was a big fan of the um, Jidaigeki, like uh, period dramas that were mm-hmm. on TV in Japan and was constantly watching them. So anytime mm-hmm. I would go visit her, then she would always have them on. And even though I didn't understand the language, I was just glued to the TV set because, yeah. you know, people who looked like my relatives were like fighting with samurai swords. Like, <laughs> who doesn't want to watch that? Yeah. Right? Um, but, you know, it was such stark contrast to the kinds of Asian representations that I would see from time to time on television. These kinds of, um, you know, really infantilized men um, who had no sex appeal were not sexually desirable. I mean, I was still too young to understand the implications of that, but I knew they weren't cool. Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. They were the nerds. They were the kids that got beaten up. They yeah. were the people who didn't get the girl. And um, that was not the case in the Japanese films that she showed me. So I, I got to have another perspective that otherwise I really might not have gotten living in the town that I grew up in. Um, so ever since then, I've, I've really been kind of fascinated by um, the differences in media culture Um, I spent a long time studying Japanese cinema, um, did a graduate program in Japanese cinema studies. And uh, when I was living in the UK, co-founded the first Japanese film festival there. Nice. Um, So it was something that I think was very personal in a lot of ways for me. And I I didn't really have the vocabulary for it yet, but it was totally like identity driven. And I was just trying to understand like who I was as like a young person. You know, I was in my early 20s, like living in the UK having moved to England straight out of high school and yeah. like, Jeez. yeah, no idea like <laughs> what it was to be Japanese American. I still kind of thought myself as Japanese until I lived in Japan and like realized that, oh, nope, not Japanese either. <laughs> yeah, um, you're in that in between. But it was kind of cool because like it really then having the opportunity to come here to Philly about a decade ago, like I got so integrated uh, very quickly within the local community here uh, because The work that I was doing, I was working for the Greater Philadelphia Film Office, local film commission, um, got to do some cool stuff in terms of on-location shoots from some of the bigger Hollywood studios that were shooting here in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. But um, unfortunately, like four months after I moved here, the Tohoku earthquake happened. And so the triple disaster in Japan, the tsunami, the Fukushima Daiichi Mm -hmm. nuclear plant disaster, um, that happened and I was just torn up because I I didn't know what to do. I was so far away. I had friends and family that were kind of in the general vicinity of there. And, um, you know, because I had a film background, I I decided that I was going to try to put together a charity film festival. So we did a couple of film screenings earlier in the year and then actually had a four day film festival um, with the proceeds going towards the Tohoku relief efforts. Um, And that just kind of put me in touch with the community. And I got to spend more time getting to know who Japanese American community was, but then the broader Asian American community uh, through the Asian American Film Festival. Um, So doing this kind of work, it just is natural to me. It's Mm -hmm. it's part of this kind of extension, I think, of trying to understand who I was as a younger adult. um, Now I'm I'm kind of like in my early 30s and not obviously nobody has it figured out ever. (laughs) Yeah. Right. But. Uh, at this point, I'm I'm comfortable with who I am, and I just want other people to be able to have that experience maybe a little easier than I did um, by having this access to a multitude of different perspectives and authentic representations of people that look like them. Yeah. From my college days, this is stuff I actually didn't write down, but I remembered as you were talking, I was like, oh my God, this would totally be a great thing to say. So um, <laughs> I just remember over and over again when I was in college, just like hearing that Asian culture of Southeast Asian, South Asian, and East Asian has just such a long history. 
longer and complex, more so than any white person has ever given credit for. And that like throughout history, there was just this big push to one, like minimalize that Mm -hmm. to increase like the wonderfulness of Western Europe. And then also (laughs) like to validate doing horrible things to India Mm -hmm. during uh, colonization through Britain and um, basically China and like all the countries that exist in Asia that were doing a lot of stuff for a very long time in a very sophisticated and, you know, different way than what was happening in Western Europe. And they would basically be like, no, this is bad. We have to make it seem more brutal. We have to make it seem more uncivilized in terms Mm -hmm. of our lens. And then stealing cultural things from there and being like, no, 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 that wasn't happening. This is from us. We have invented this. It just just kind of goes back to this, like, whole long history of trying to, like, minimalize the wonderfulness and success and beautifulness of cultures that are different than whiteness. Mm -hmm. Um, And manipulating the lens in which we're viewing them, too. So, like, as you were saying, basically having stories that take elements of the culture Mm -hmm. that they're trying to present, but not having anyone from that culture being actually the one representing it. I mean, so Um, much of that, I think, uh, stems from this idea of Orientalism, right? Um, mm -hmm. Edward Said talks about that uh, in his seminal text on uh, post-colonial studies. Yep. But it's that idea that, you know, the West is constantly fetishizing the East. Mm -hmm. And it's through that lens of the Orientalist that we have these tropes and stereotypes So he was talking about folks from the Middle East, but it can just as easily be attributed to indigenous folks, to Mm -hmm. African folks, to people in South Asia and East Asia. Um, So I think like so much of that, and unfortunately, even anthropology kind of stems from that idea of Mm -hmm. kind of pseudoscientific rationalization of why it was okay for Europeans to be colonizing people. Yeah. Yeah. How that translates into film, which is some of the tropes that you know, we've been talking about the reason we often would see white people portraying Asian people (laughs) in films, especially like way back when, when the films were first starting, like silent films, and then even transcending past that is partnered with like anti miscegenation, miscegenation, miscegenation (laughs) flaws. Yes. So it's basically where you cannot portray any races that were different from each other, married, interacting together in a positive way and like in film specifically uh louise rayner during the casting of the good earth uh pearl books the good earth was trying to get the lead role and they were like no 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 we want this white man to play this asian character or this chinese specific character so we can't cast you as this role because you cannot be on screen with this man as we saw in the terror, he was like, when he was with his girlfriend who was pregnant, he's like, but we're not married because we know that's not. She's just yeah. my girl. We're mm-hmm. not we're not married. And like seeing that and being like, oh, my God, this is from the thing, the thing, the thing. Look, it's in the, <laughs> the TV. Stuff like that, right? The, the anti-miscegenation and anti-race mixing laws. That's all part of the Hayes Code. So, you know, from the 30s through the mid 50s, you got that like really tough clamp down like and from a time period that immediately before that, 
uh, like the 1910s at least, tended to be fairly progressive in the United States. Mm -hmm. The 20s, like, signals this decline into, like, really conservatism, social conservatism, um, you know, despite this kind of push and pull and the fighting uh, around prohibition laws. People are fighting for the soul of America. It's not dislike, I guess, what's happening right now today. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think very poignantly, looking at things that are as ridiculous as someone who um, is rather going to cast two people in yellow face than having one actor or actress that could be Asian because of this... you know, law that doesn't even exist. It wasn't even a law. It was just this code that the Hollywood producers yeah. got together. <laughs> oh, no, the Hollywood producers. Sorry, this, this is so cool. So we watched some stuff as we do, um, specifically uh, The Terror from 2018, created by Max Bronstein, Alexander Wu, and George Takei. Takei? Takei. But he's consulting. He's not He's consulting. But he's a consultant. But he's great and should be talked about all the time. Yes. Um, so essentially, the plot of this is supernatural, semi-historical horror anthology series, which each season is inspired by a different, infamous, or mysterious real-life historical tragedy so historical fiction slash like you know based on real things that are made into fictional yes spooky times yes which is super fun um season two specifically documents the history of the japanese american incarceration during world war ii yes um so it it features um the these japanese characters so it's it's Pretty much almost all <laughs> Japanese characters, which is awesome. Um, the few like white characters that are prominent um, that I can think of, there's the one drunk boss guy who is clearly a villain, um, and then there is the like the friend who's in the military who's like, is he a villain? I don't know. Um, and then we also have another um, main character who is a Hispanic woman, Luz. So it's like it's it's really interesting to see an entire. Um, majority of a cast being a race that is not white um, it's, and specifically it being Japanese on like AMC <laughs> right? like that doesn't happen mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. it's cool that none of them were good white people too sometimes, there's not always a good white person sometimes, mm-hmm. yeah, sometimes they're not it is kind of crazy right to just flip the channels and happen upon an episode of the terror and everybody's speaking in Japanese yeah and they're all played by Japanese or Japanese Americans and it's just kind of a mind-blowing thing I think for the entire like nationwide Japanese American community because for so many decades like there's been this stigma on Mm -hmm. being Japanese right and so like Parts of Japanese culture are cool, and people like to cherry-pick which ones are acceptable and which are not. But a uh, rule of thumb is that if you're a Japanese-American practicing Japanese culture, it's not cool. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. So it's, it's nice to see something like this, and I, I sincerely hope that it might lead to some more progressive and inclusive conversations about that. Yeah, and I, I think there's a lot of strengths for this that I 
was kind of like making mental note of. Um, first, thank you so much for suggesting it. <laughs> and I was just like, that was perfect. I think it's interesting because it is a horror show because it is very spooky. There are parts in that that are, are scary. There's like the, the fidgety movements that really get people, mm-hmm. um, which is also like... Um, like that kind of like body movement twitch thing is also like kind of influenced from Japanese horror films too. So it's like awesome that that's in there. Um, but then it's also like they're the, the fantastical kind of like stories that come from their history. Um, but the, the real horror is very honestly like the situations that they're in and like the, the fear that like, you know, at any point, they're just going to turn on you. Like they're totally ripped of all of their rights. They're sent from place to place. The dad is just taken like in the middle of the day and we don't know where he is. And I, there's like a scene where he's just like, where did he go? And they just will not tell him. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how dare you even ask? And so there's all these like levels to that, like, and kind of paralleling it to what we see today. It's just like kind of further asserts that, um, and George has been, um, quoted in this article he said what we have is this endless cycle the repetition of this kind of horror injustice being inflicted on minority people and we see it again today on our southern borders Um, but we've reached a new grotesque low we were together with our parents our families were intact what we see today now is this incredible inhumanity of children being torn away from their parents i hope this show will remind people that it will that it is still existing today it is our hope that enough people enough americans seeing this We'll try to keep this sort of thing from reoccurring in the future of this country to make it better, truer democracy. Which is literally what we were saying. <laughs> so I think he did a good job. Like um, for anyone who's who's watching with their media analysis classes, um, and I think even if you're trying to be a passive viewer, it's hard to just look at this and just be like, oh, there's a spooky ghost that you know makes people kill themselves, and even not even understanding <laughs> like what the is it Ure? Ure. Um, even if you don't understand what that is, you know, like, this is a bad thing, <laughs> right? And even if you're like, that's scary, um, it's really, really hard to shut off what else is scary. Yeah, and I think that's what the show captures so elegantly, right? Because uh, there's so many things to be afraid of in yeah. that show. I mean, the idea that uh, one, you're being othered and singled out because you look like the enemy. Right. And sharing the face or the ancestry of the same country that has just bombed Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. Terrifying. Yeah. Right. Or the fact that your father or husband could be plucked in the middle of the night and brought to some undisclosed location for uh, unknown period of time uh, without really any kind of safety net as to whether they'll come back at all. Mm-hmm. Um, or simply the fact that there's armed guards walking around inside of a prison camp that have guns pointed inwards from the watchtowers. Um, you know, I think one of the common misconceptions about these camps uh, is actually stemming from the words that we used to describe them, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, internment is actually not an accurate descriptor, right? Because the according to the Geneva Conventions, internment is only... Uh, enemy combatants or people of another nationality that are being segregated um, by the military. This is actually, by definition, a concentration camp Mm. because it is a concentrated group of minorities that are being isolated, uh, two-thirds of whom were actually American-born citizens. So thinking about it from that perspective, um, man, that's a scary concept. Yeah. You know? It's something that I think is is 
back then, as it is now, very familiar to the Japanese American community. And uh, these are all the kinds of stuff that this show captures brilliantly on top of um, obviously some great nods to a more traditional Japanese horror genre. Yeah. I what I thought was interesting is that it kind of like walks into um, the like Pearl Harbor like it doesn't start there it gets you kind of comfortable first and you're just focused on like this is a like a you know a traditional story where they're like doing that and you kind of know um, but as soon as it happened like I was like oh no oh my gosh I just remembered <laughs> like it was Pearl like, Harbor happened <laughs> it was like this means so much like and it was I was immediately like scared in a totally different way than I had been previously in that show because it's like the first part of it really is like there's this you know person who's getting revenge um, well person uh, in quotes because I don't really know <laughs> we're watching it, right? Um, he's getting revenge in this in this supernatural way. So we're seeing that, and that's, like, already kind of cringy and, like, weird because it, like, makes them put themselves in harm's way. So it's, like, this really weird, um, like, like, unpredictable terror, too. Um, but then as soon as that came in, I was like, whoa, we have a whole new, <laughs> like, horror to worry about, um, which I thought was really, really good um, in the, like, because they could have just started us in there. Mm -hmm. But instead, they were like, let's just walk us in there. And, like, um, I think the the main character, Chester, and his experiences are really, really interesting um, in that, like, he like this whole situation in this war is like this difference between being Japanese and American, but he is Japanese American, right? So he's like caught in this in between, mm -hmm. and even like enlisting is like this really big deal where it's just like, what side is he on, and who's going to believe he's on any side, and why should he be on any side? <laughs> like I was like, wait, what is he? Is this bad? I was like, which part of this is bad? Um, when I was watching, because it was just so conflicting to see him go through that. Yeah. And I think that's the other part of the story that I, again, echoes very true to life is that, you know, it must have been terrifying to be a, a soldier on any side of that war, Yeah, let alone a Japanese American who was fighting an enemy that looked like them, yeah. and which was a very small minority of people, right? Because the most uh, largest groups of Japanese Americans who enlisted were in the European front of the war. Over 20,000 Japanese Americans enlisted for the uh, all Japanese American segregated regiment called the 442nd. But there was a smaller group called the Military Intelligence Service, MIS, which Chester's character actually enlists in. Mm -hmm. And some of those guys were actually put into the Pacific because they needed them to do translation. They needed them to interrogate prisoners. They mm -hmm. were using them for some, uh, even some spying on the uh, Japanese empire. So it's thinking about what it must have been like to be someone in that position. Yeah. Knowing how delicate your life was hanging in the balance you're surrounded by a, a group of American soldiers that are literally killing people that look like you on a daily basis and are being killed by them too, right? Yeah. And it's that kind of thing where, um, I mean, you can understand why someone might be distrustful then of somebody who's amongst their own ranks who looks like this enemy. Um, and that's the kind of reality I think that Chester has begun to face in the later half of the season. So um, obviously, I haven't even seen the whole season yet because it's still airing, but um, it'll be interesting really to see how they uh, trace his character throughout that journey. 
in it yeah it's crazy to see that and how they were just kind of like snuck around um like underneath and then just popping up till they figured out where they were gonna put them um it's like intentionally crazy. dehumanizing a group of people where i mean you saw that a lot in like as you say it's not internment camps it's concentration camps mm-hmm. in like the Holocaust, that's, they did that all the time where they would separate families intentionally. They mm. would have you, they would take all of your items. They would like get rid of anything that reminded you of who you were before you were here to make that feel distant. And that yeah. like you, it was trying to erase who you were before so that other people had and erased also do you that. Yeah. from society. Part of that reason too, uh, I had referenced earlier about taking Buddhist leaders out of the community was to intentionally destabilize the Japanese American community. So mm-hmm. a large part of that was anyone who could be identified as someone that would be a pillar within their community, those were like the first people to go. Yeah. And I mean, the, the likelihood that one of those people might be a spy was extremely slim. In fact, in the entire duration of World War II, they didn't find a single shred of evidence that any Japanese Americans were plotting anything even remotely treasonous (laughs) against the United Mm -hmm. States. But, uh, you know, it's interesting to to kind of think about it. And I think how much of this is really being represented for the first time, Um, because like I can't stress enough how revolutionary it is to be able to watch these stories that I've grown up hearing from my elders in this community, like on screen in primetime television. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that it's in the context of a horror show. And I think it makes sense for a lot of reasons that we've all been talking about here. But it's also kind of interesting that it couldn't happen before this or in a different genre. Mm -hmm. Like it wouldn't be able to stand alone. They kind of needed the horror element as a vehicle to get this pipelined into a mainstream platform so that other audiences would be willing to watch it but also so that the industry itself could invest in it. Yeah. And I think that's kind of like there. there's two, I feel like, reasons for that that I would say. One, I feel like with horror, um, we've said before, is kind of like on the fringe, right? So it doesn't get as patrolled as the rest of the genres. Mm-hmm. So it does get away with a lot more. Um, but I also think because specifically with this being about Japanese like culture, that having it be horror makes sense in that like America is so obsessed (laughs) with Japanese horror and like taking it and making it our own however terrible it might be um (laughs) in our version right uh but like there is an obsession there so it kind of like is almost like there's a good bridge that we would already like we're already interested in that Mm -hmm. so I think the next step would be we are interested in seeing that culture actually doing it (laughs) And also seeing it um, in ways that, like, I feel like other, um, like, foreign horror even doesn't, isn't quite as, like, digestible to American audiences mm-hmm. as well as, like, as as much as it is with Japanese horror. I guess. Yeah, and I, I think on that note, like, I know you guys did a whole episode on Japanese horror, but, um, yeah, I brought this book with me here, which is yes. Kaidan. This is the original collection of stories that Lafcadio Hearn took. Um, from oral histories when he was traveling through Japan in the mid to late 1800s. But 90% of the Japanese ghost stories that we know today that have been turned into Japanese horror films comes from this collection of short stories. So it's also kind of interesting to me because like having grown up with some of these stories and then having done quite a bit of research on the uh, film adaptation of the film, of the stories rather, um, Mm -hmm. 1964, Masaki Kobayashi's film. It was great to see so many of these things being uh, integrated in a, a really authentic way into the terror. 
Yeah. And uh, again, without going into too many specifics, uh, the Yure character meets all of the criteria of all of the Yure that are talked about in the, the context of these stories. Um, it's familiar to people who have seen things like Ringu, but it's clearly something that extends beyond that and has like a direct, uh, I think, genesis that comes from the Japanese folklore. Mm-hmm. So it's exciting to me to be able to see that stuff on American primetime television. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's one of those things where like, you know, in this case, um, I'm grateful to know that there are obviously Japanese and Japanese Americans who are consulting on this. And that's probably a good part of the reason why it's so like yeah. accurate. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, even if it wasn't, and even if this was a show that like had, um, you know, very little impact on real conversations. I hope, fingers crossed, it does lead to more people having dialogues like this. But even if it doesn't, I think it'll give people a better sense of what like an authentic Japanese horror is about versus the kind of tropes that we've seen recycled in the American versions of The Ring or The Grudge. (laughs) Yeah, and I guess for, um, I'm sure our listeners have listened to our J-Horror episode, but if you haven't, um, do you mind telling our listeners about the Yurei and what they're about? Yeah, so Yurei are kind of a class of ghosts, uh, which are typically a vengeful female spirit usually a person who was wronged by a man in their life as a human. Um, Perhaps they were jilted by a lover. Maybe they were actually killed by their lover. Uh, Sometimes they've also been robbed of their child, um, either through childbirth or um, some other kind of malfeasance by a husband or a, a lover. And so this kind of spirit will take possession of people, typically only the person who's being haunted or tormented by the yure can see them. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes the attributes of shape-shifting are also attributed to them. So if you're watching the terror, you'll hear most oftentimes they kind of switch between the word bakemono and yure. And bakemono is kind of like a broader term for monster in general. But in the context that they're using it is also about a shapeshifter, oh, right? Okay. So like bakemono or yure like have the same kinds of attributes as we're seeing uh, within the context of the show. And um, I think one of the more interesting things that they've started to do with Chester's storyline is to, you know, bring us into this point in his head where he's starting to question is this real? Yeah. You know, because he's already out in the field. And and again, I don't want to spoil too much, but he's starting to question, are these things actually happening because of a yure or a bakemono? And like mm-hmm. how much of the stuff that has tormented my family since Pearl Harbor is actually attributed to this kind of like evil spirit and, or the vengeance spirit? Yeah. Yeah, feeling. Yeah, is that feeling? Let's talk about feelings. Okay. Yeah, so if it's bad, it's that we spent 10 minutes, maybe more than that, trying to just think of a movie or show outside of the terror that did it, that did East Asian representation well. Or even just or like, like or, was there or horror and bad. Yes, like horror we just don't get because that's what we want. And then it, if you like it, it's that. Uh, therefore, we need to keep doing this, right? We need to keep creating shows and 
having platforms um, for things like the terror so that that becomes normal, so that we have stories where um, we can have more multifaceted characters and they can be a villain, but it's not about race and they can be a hero and it's not about race and they can just be the a friend and not like, and then there's also a protagonist who's also them. Like we can have more than one like minority on screen um, and they can serve all different kinds of uh, roles and they don't have to fit these cliche things that we keep seeing and reoccurring. And the way that we do that is that we put pen and paper and we put film cameras and we put money into the pockets of the people who are creating these stories, who have the right to create these stories, right? Um, and that's kind of like, I feel like what we see in the success of the terror is that we do have people who have a right to the story. And even still, um, further than that, like, you know, got consulting from George Takei to make sure that they were getting all the facts right. Um, how do you guys feel about East Asian representation? Needs a lot of work. <laughs> yes yes yeah it's just there's so many damaging things that like just media in general has now created for just lots of the population of the world yeah but very specifically like east asian and asian communities that makes them appear on screen either as less human less attractive less less yeah being the operative word and that it's just really damaging as a human to grow up and have that be what you see as what's supposed to be a presentation of yourself. Okay. On the other side too, right? There's this kind of idea that like Asians and particularly East Asians are this model minority that mm. are somehow like closer to whiteness than other communities of color. And um, I mean, there's a lot of folks in our community who are really damaged by that too, right? Yeah. Because you pigeonhole somebody into this particular stereotype. We've got a lot of immigrants and also refugees who come from East Asian countries and Southeast Asian countries that do need support and need government assistance. And, um, you know, even something as simple as a kid who's in a, a really hard math class or chemistry class, they feel like they can't necessarily reach out to a peer or a teacher for help mm -hmm. uh, because they're Asian. They, they're supposed to get this, right? Yeah. So just finding ways to overcorrect, not overcorrect, but you know, at least get enough of a diversity in the representations because, yeah, we've got like scientists and researchers and doctors, but we've also got gangbangers and <laughs> yeah. drug pushers and <laughs> yeah. serial killers even, right? So mm -hmm. like showing enough of all of these different things so that it really doesn't matter anymore that you can have a film about like a Chinese American serial killer like number one serial killer and that's yes. not gonna impact like the entire community and then everybody thinks that all Chinese people are are serial killers <laughs> yeah because they also see heroes and they also see best friends and you know um yeah what about just quickly uh we've already kind of talked about how much we love the terror but your rating of the terror I think it's fantastic. Um, you know, as far as historical accuracy, the one thing that I need to point out is that it's not an actual camp that they're being put in. Uh, it resembles very closely the Minidoka camp, which was located in Idaho. Mm -hmm. But uh, in the show, I believe they're located in Washington and there were no camps in Washington state. Um, also, I'm not sure that it was a real assembly center that they used. Uh, although there were many racetracks that were actually used, Santa mm -hmm. Anita racetrack and the Tanforan Assembly Center was also a racetrack. So the, the bits that they talk about in terms of like the horse feces in the stalls, like yeah. that was real. Yeah. Um, and I've heard multiple accounts to that, uh, attesting of that. 
Um, but yeah, otherwise, I mean, it's a really well done show. I mean, for them to be able to cover as much of the history as they do in something like eight episodes. Yeah. It's yeah. insane. And I, I think it is a testament, again, to what you can do when you involve community in your mm -hmm. storytelling. It's not that hard. Yeah. And it makes yeah. for a really compelling product. Yeah. And that like the idea that you can't sell such things to an audience of the United States is no, it's not real. And we, yeah, we need to keep fighting because it's not real. And you can't tell us it's not real, like yeah. that it's real. Yeah. You will see movies like Us. You will see movies like Get Out. You will mm -hmm. see shows like The Terror on mainstream and popular media. And that, that's cool. Crazy Asians. Black Panther. Black Panther. They sell um, tickets. People want to go see them. And all these white men need to go sit and go home. <laughs> you they did it. You had home. your time. Women want to make horror films, Bloom. <laughs> yes. Whatever your name is. <laughs> yes. And I, I don't want to be loud, but I'll be loud if I got it. That's all I'm saying. Yes. Nothing yeah. about us without us. Uh, which is such a great thing, uh, which is exactly what this is. Um, thank you so much, Rob, <laughs> for joining us. It's been super awesome. It was just what we dreamed and imagined um, in that you're so knowledgeable, and I knew it. Uh, and we are really excited um, for, you know, what the future of representation in horror is going to be. Um, I don't know if our little podcast is going to make waves. Uh, I hope it does. Uh, but for our listeners, if uh, first off, again, for anyone who wants to get in touch with our guests, you can always email us at thegoolsnextdoor at gmail.com and just, like, mention, like, this is for Rob, and then we'll, like, get you in touch with them or we'll send it over. Um, but if our people do want to, like, reach out to you, uh, where can we find you? You can find me at www.paaff.org, nice. uh, facebook.com slash path as well. Uh, we are actually getting ready for our 12th annual festival. So the dates this year are November 7th through the 17th. We've got 11 consecutive days of films, panels, discussions, workshops, concerts, theater performances, an academic conference, and uh, a couple of different art installations. So really excited about that. And I'll actually shout out one title in particular that your listeners might be interested in. Yes. On Friday, November 8th at the Lightbox Film Center, we will be showing a Chinese mainland film called The Last Sunrise. Uh, filmmakers are actually based here in New York City. And, um, you know, they went to film school here in the U.S., but they are born in mainland China. I would still consider them Asian American filmmakers, right? Because mm -hmm. they're kind yeah. of between worlds in, in the respect that the diasporic experience distances you from your country of origin, even if you've only lived here for a decade. Uh, but in any case, fantastic film. It's about a group of people living in mainland China who are facing the reality of the sun burning out wow. and trying to figure out what they can do in the 72 hours or so that they have until the Earth's temperature at the surface level becomes inhospitable to life. Yikes. Oh, I should also mention, <laughs> we always do a genre shorts program, and uh, that'll actually be on the evening of Saturday, the 9th of November, also at Lightbox. But uh, ever since I, I came on board as a film programmer at PAF, um, I've always tried to spotlight this genre, right? Yeah. And it's, uh, it's an exciting thing that we're able to offer completely free. <laughs> Yay! Oh my gosh, it's free. Oh, I was awesome. about to like sidebar ask afterwards. I was like, how do we go? <laughs> well, then attend it. You have no excuse now. You can come hang out with the ghouls and Rob at the festival to see some really great films because they're, this is the future. This is what we have. Um, so again, thank you so much, Rob. 
Thanks for having me. <laughs> this is awesome. So don't get don't married. Delete your, your kids. kids.